You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to another episode of the Revision Path Podcast. I'm Maurice Cherry, and before we get to this week's interview, I want to take some time out and thank our sponsor, MailChimp. MailChimp has over 7 million users, and it's the premier online email marketing solution for your small business. You can manage contacts, send emails, and track the results of your campaign. It also works with a lot of other services that small businesses use, like FreshBooks, SurveyMonkey, other services like that. Sign up today for a free account at MailChimp.com. Our 50th interview contest ends at the end of this month. All you have to do is leave us a review on either iTunes or Stitcher Radio, and you'll be automatically entered into the drawing for a $50 Amazon.com gift card. For more details, go to revisionpath.com and click the orange banner at the top of the page. Don't forget that you have to send us your iTunes or Stitcher Radio name so we can verify your entry. We're also looking for guest bloggers for our blog. So far, we've had some really great posts, and we want to keep that momentum going. Send us a pitch. Uh, we really want to hear from you. Go to revisionpath.com. Scroll to the bottom of the page and click on Write for Us. Now, this week I talked with David Dennis, a software engineer in New York City. Here we go. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. Hi, Maurice. I am a software engineer in New York City. I've worked for a number of technology companies Goldman Sachs, Microsoft, and four technology startups so far. Now, you've also worked on a lot of kind of unique projects. Some of these have been within the places that you've worked, which we'll talk about. But one of them that I saw that was really interesting is the Mask Society. <laughs> Can you tell me a little bit about that? Sure. So I, uh, I went to, first of all, my name is David Dennis. Uh, I, I <laughs> went to um, Georgetown uh, for my master's degree in computer science. And while I was there, I learned a programming language called Python, which I use daily nowadays. And while also I learned a web development framework called Django, and my first project with Django was called the Mask Society, which was an attempt at building a social network. And the idea with this social network is it would allow you to talk about your friends with your friends anonymously. So it had a sort of uh, inverted Facebook feel. So if I were to friend you, Maurice, and you were to accept my friendship, then I could talk about you on your profile, and you could talk about me, but we could both do so anonymously, and you actually don't have access to your own profile. All of your friends can talk as much as they want about you, but you don't have access to what they say. In a way, that sort of sounds like like secret, I guess, in a way, yeah. but this sort of takes it to the next level, I guess. Are you still working on that? I worked on it for two years. And it was, you know, it was mostly, it was, it was all me doing the development. And, you know, I had about 100 people join. And it was, after a while, it was too much for me to work on while mm-hmm. I was also trying to maintain a full-time job. So it's still, uh, all the code's still there and it still can run. It's just, um, I decided to shut it down for now. There were also some privacy concerns, obviously. And, right. Uh, but it was a good experience. I, I talked with designers from Google X, and you know, we actually got on the phone with a couple of venture capitalist companies, and you know, I, I got my foot out in the door. And it, it's hard to go from software developer to company founder. You know, mm-hmm. That's the direction I was trying to go, and uh, you know, it was a good experiment. But it might pick up again. But it's it's in hibernation right now. Yeah, I think HBO's uh, that that show that was on HBO Silicon Valley kind of shows a little bit about that that difficulty of, of going from, like you said, software developer to, to company owner and the growing pains that kind of can, uh, can come with that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I love that show, but uh, that, that show was, it was sort of like, uh, you know, going to work. It was just it was, it was a little <laughs> too realistic. It was very, right. me and my friends at work were like, you know, this is like our life. Too real. <laughs> now, you just came back a few months ago from the White House. You were uh, part of the LGBT Tech Innovation Summit. How was that experience? That was interesting. That was set up by a friend of mine, Taryn Miller-Stevens, uh, who I actually went to Tufts with. She runs an organization, a lesbian uh, pride organization, and she was invited to the White House to for the LGBT, the general LGBT celebration. Um, mm-hmm. And 
she then talked with the director of public engagement there about forming another LGBT reception that was based around technology and innovation. And that was, that was the one that I was a part of. And uh, I was invited down. I came there. They had a number of great speakers, some of which, you know, there were policy. It was a lot of policy, actually. It was uh, someone from the Department of Agriculture talking about AIDS outreach. Someone from the Williams Institute, I believe, who was talking about how LGBT, there's a perception of LGBT people of having a lot of money or having, you know, a lot of free income, you know, especially gay men, it seems like they, you know, they, that's the stereotype. But if you actually look at the statistics that they break down, is that especially in rural areas, if you're LGBT, you are more often denied jobs, have less disposable income, that it's, you know, all of these, you know, typically seen in other minorities, all of these stats about how it's, it's actually difficult financially if you're LGBT. And he also talked about, uh, you know, we need to monitor more statistics to address the problem. But I also met with a number, there were also people handing out cards from Google Ventures, a lot of venture capital firms willing to provide uh, venture capital for um, LGBT. And it was a great event. It was, I, I didn't get to meet uh, Barack or Michelle. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a little, bit, a little bit of a letdown, but I did, there were a lot of interesting people there. And it was, you know, it was a great, it was, it was very humbling, you know, to, to go to the White House. Now, tell me about your time at uh, Tufts University. Like you said, you went there for undergrad. You were a computer science major, right? Yeah. How was your time there? So Tufts was my reach school. I, you know, I was really, when I was applying to schools, I was really trying to, I didn't know how, how I would fare. And I, I was very excited to get in. I luckily got financial aid. And I just took full advantage. You know, I went full on computer science, which is a very hard uh, major, you know, and, you know, I was, I was the only black face in the room. And it was very challenging just to do that. And the courses, I, I took an extremely large course load. So I was taking, you know, computer graphics and parallel processing, you know, very, I was trying to go for the gold and try to uh, take as many computer science classes as I could. because I loved the stuff. And, you know, while I was there, I also was a part of um, the student government. I actually talked with the administration about doing a project at the um, the subway station to put more Tufts art up because Harvard and MIT, which were the two closest schools, they had you know all sorts of art at their subway stations, and we successfully got a project done with that. I was really trying to be as active as possible and just take uh-huh. advantage of the experience. And I and I really in the end I had a great time at Tufts. And then from Tufts you went on to Georgetown, you said. So while I was at Tufts, I had a summer internship at Goldman Sachs my junior at the end of my junior year, and then I got a full-time offer, and I worked there for two years. And then after that was Georgetown. How was uh, working at Goldman Sachs? That was interesting. Um, I actually, uh, I wasn't really, you know, the typical finance guy, you know, the people who worked at Goldman, uh, you know, had been been enthusiastic about finance and economics from a, from a young age. And, and to me, it was this, this other world that I just wanted to know more about. So I decided to apply. You know, a friend of mine had gotten me and got, given a call and gotten me an interview. It's very hard to get in. And I, you know, I impressed them in the interview. And um, basically, I worked in the in internship, I worked in the HR division, which is, which is called HCM, Human Capital Management. You know, they give it a fancy name. And I was building software for them to manage salary information and another a crisis management system. You know, the executives wanted to know in case of an earthquake or a, a tsunami where everybody was. You know, there's 20,000 people who worked at Goldman Sachs at the time. It's a very rough and tumble environment. You know, it's it's very uh, it's very competitive. It's very uh, you know, there's a lot of a lot of money on the line where you work there, mm-hmm. and you know, hopefully, if you do well, you make a lot of money. And but it was also very professional, and that's what I really liked. Actually, the, from the from the beginning, I actually really liked the fact that they gave a seminar to everybody about diversity and about the company's efforts to um, include more people and to just giving you guidelines. You know, you have to wear business casual all the time. It's, it's a very it's a very traditional company in a way too. You know, right. I graduated from Morehouse, and I know that Goldman Sachs does a lot of. Uh, recruiting directly from Morehouse. I know from like the finance department, business department, things like that. So I sort of have a a bit of familiarity with with Goldman Sachs with relation to 
than being a, a pretty sort of conservative, sort of straight-laced company like that. But it's interesting, like you said, that they had these seminars on diversity and about the importance of it within kind of the the total structure of the company. So that's pretty good. Yeah, and they also have firm-wide black and and gay and women organizations. So you uh-huh. can actually, you know, they sort of like, you know, once in a while they have a, they'll have a reception where you'll have fancy appetizers and drinks and and meet with the big wigs in the in the company who are you know who are black and who are female. Um, or I didn't go to the, the women's one, but the black or the gay gay event. It was, mm-hmm. it was really great, great networking opportunities. That was a great experience overall. But Goldman, in the end, uh, was not. I moved from HR then to for full time. I worked. I interviewed with the private equity group, where they, um, you know, they do basically, you know, they trade shares of companies that are private, that are that are not public. And there's a whole like shadow market that you that you can be a part of if you're a big bank or a big hedge fund. And uh, that was exciting. And actually, you know, Tufts was. Well, I shouldn't talk about it, but but. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway. you can talk about it if you if you want. You want to go in depth about it. Well, Tufts' own endowment is partially is partially um, managed by Goldman, or at least was at the time. Uh-huh. That was exciting to see the other side of that, you know. And uh, it really gave you this top down view of of companies and corporate structure. And a lot of it was just managing. A lot of my work was building or assist or fixing software that helped the private equity team sort of explore all the companies, all of their, all of their holdings, all of, um, you know, report all of that information and just see, see the market, the the market going. And, you know, what's nice about being a software developer is you aren't tied to one specific industry. You don't have to be, you can be, but your work is neutral. So you can work one day in finance and then one day in, you know, we'll get to it, but I worked for a happiness company. Mm-hmm. And and then I work, work for a wine company. You know, it's, it's very diverse. Now, earlier you were talking about sort of financial aid when you said that you uh, you were able to go to Tufts because of that. And from your background, we, we sort of spoke a little bit about this earlier. You mentioned that something happened in seventh grade that sort of put you on the path to where you are now. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So I grew up in Queens. You know, I went to public school. And actually, I had a great experience there. And uh, Jamaica, Queens, you know, half of it, as my mother tells me, half of it was, was, was very nice and half of it was a little bit ghetto. But it was still, I had a great experience. And then we moved to White Plains in Westchester County. And I went to schools there and I still, still was having a good time. But then um, my mother works for a, she raises money for nonprofits. And Okay. Part of her job is talking to you know wealthy people about raising money for all sorts of causes. She managed to befriend this benefactor who said she, she would pay for... I wasn't doing that well in school in sixth grade. And she managed to talk this benefactor into paying for me to go to a private school called the Harvey School in Katona, New York. And I went there for, for two years. And it was very preppy. It was a... You know, it was a very nice, well-to-do school, and I think I noticed my grades started to improve. My, uh, you know, I really started to develop a passion for for learning, and it was also it was also very difficult because they weren't used to having you know uh, black students there, um, mm-hmm. and uh, it was difficult at times. I got to say, it was a balance because I don't want to I don't want to have it perceived that there was anything egregiously wrong with the, with the school and. It was really a growing experience, and then after that, I went to Scarsdale, uh, New York, um, and you know the benefactor sort of helped financially with us staying. So, so that was a public school, but actually, the way it works is this, the town is so wealthy that in order to stay there, you know, you need to afford a you know a, an expensive house there. So she sort of helped us with that, and we got to live there and go to the school, and you know that was a great education that I got there, and that's when I got into. I got into philosophy and intellectualism and, and all sorts of, of other stuff. And I became a real nerd. Mm-hmm. And I started reading a lot outside of school. And, you know, that's, that's when I decided I was going to pursue computer science because I thought it was really going to take off. And I happened to be right in my prediction. Now, I, before that, did you really sort of have a, a spark or, or like a, a certain kind of affinity towards technology? Or was your exposure you know, sort of through the school, your, your gateway into computer science? 
Well, I think my mother sort of encouraged me. I guess that's a good point. I mean, my mother sort of encouraged me to also go to like random, you know, summer camp experiences. Like I, mm-hmm. I had one summer experience where at the in eighth grade where I um, I went to, I think it's the Har- Harlem Children's something. It's not the Harlem Children's Zone, but it's it was a separate organization that gave uh, technology seminars to to students on every. They taught them Photoshop. They taught. They taught something which was a little bit like programming. It was more like a game. It was a really good exposure to to technology. And she also worked for she also worked for the Harbor in New York, which uh, is sort of a it sort of does nonprofit work for Black and Latino kids in inner city kids. And that was that was sort of they were trying to be more technology focused, so they gave they gave classes for that. And then also I'm trying to think of anything else. I think from a young age, I think I remember when I was like like maybe five or six or or, or something around that age where I saw the first time a computer. I saw somebody playing uh-huh. Tetris on their on their desktop computer and I was uh-huh. I was like, What is that? <laughs> and I was like, I want to know what that is. And I, you know, and I became in, enthralled with it. And it wasn't until maybe fifth grade that I actually, that we actually got a computer, a desktop computer at home. And I was just on it all the time. And so mm-hmm. I guess, I, yeah, so I guess I've been a little bit nerd since young, but since I was young. What have been some of the, I guess, other particular high points of your career? Yeah, I'm, I'm 29. So I'm not... <laughs> I'm not that far along yet, but um, I think certainly getting my master's degree in computer science, I really felt like, you know, I could do anything at that point. And working at Goldman was a good experience. But then I actually, I had a summer internship at Microsoft. Okay. And while I was in grad school, and that was exciting because I I felt like the first time that I actually, you know, even though, you know, I I love technology, I, you know, I lived and breathed it. I was, I've never had worked at like a big, you know, a really technology, technology company. So mm-hmm. Microsoft, my first experience and it was great. It was very supportive and I got to build a, a project that tested um, Microsoft's whole um, enterprise, their online store where they sell windows and office. And I, uh, you know, I worked directly with, you know, some higher ups, some guys who've been working there for 15 years and, you know, it was just, it was just great mentoring. Another was when I joined my first tech startup, AppNexus, and you know that's when I really because I always wanted to work in startups, and that was really fun because it had you know my first exposure to real startup, the real startup environment where you know it was a lot of fun. They had just gotten a lot of funding, and you know they threw lots of parties, and they had really flexible hours, and you know they it, it was just uh, like if you read about how working at Google was early on. You know, it was just it was just fun. I mean, Google continues to be fun, but it's a lot more corporate now. I hear, but you know, when you get to the, those early companies, it's it's nice. And however, if you go really really early, so then I I left up Nexus to actually work at a, a really early stage company, and that is actually the opposite because that's like you're actually trying to build a company from the from the ground up and. That's like after they've gotten funding, right? When you say early stage. So, so AppNexus at that point had gotten several million dollars of funding. They were doing fine. There were tens of million dollars, so they were doing fine. The, the next company I joined, they had raised something like two million, and they were just starting out. So they were, so they had their heads down. They were working crazy hours, and it, it was a lot of work. So it's not mm-hmm. no parties, no no fun you know, time. <laughs> it's we're trying to build something that will make money. And that was a good experience in, you know, just, just working hard and, and seeing the result of that because that was Happify. That was um, a company that was actually trying to do happiness management for people. And uh, there's a whole branch of psychology that deals with uh, happiness science, which is, is based on the idea that you can make people happier through some means. So you can give them games to play and mm-hmm. you can have them focus on the positive. And I don't know if you ever heard of Lumosity. I have. So Lumosity is sort of brain training games. It tries to make you smarter by playing yeah. games. This is trying to make you happier by playing games. And I tried to build the Mass Society on my own. But this was my experience working in a professional team trying to build a social network. With This had a subscriber base. So, this, so I implemented the payment system. So people could actually start subscribing to, to paying for Happify and... Mm-hmm. Building all that now they when we launched from from zero, so now there are three hundred thousand users. There's thousands of subscribers, and that feeling of of wow, I built that because only me and another developer and the the CTO, 
And and wow, our small team built that, you know, something that's used by 300,000 people. That's a really great feeling. And with the internet now, you know, if you have that capability, um, you feel really, you know, it's really powerful. So yeah, so that's uh, that was that was a great part of my career. So you're talking about App Nexus, and this isn't specifically about sort of them as a company, but them. I guess we're talking about startups in general. Mm-hmm. One sort of criticism about a lot of startups is that they can kind of have this almost like frat house kind of culture. Hmm. In a way, and one of the views that you sort of mentioned about the tech industry, and this was you know way earlier when we first started talking. You said that while the tech industry is forward-looking in spirit, the atmosphere and business leadership can still be dominated by a straight white male culture that's hard to break into. What have been some of your experiences with that in terms of you know you're sort of coming in, you know not just as someone who knows their stuff as a computer scientist, but you're also a black gay man. Yeah. So in general, the tech startups that I've worked for, and that includes a uh, lot 18 huckster, which is actually led by with females had two uh, female CEOs and was mostly female. That was interesting. Uh-huh. And, and I hear this about why combinator, why combinator is a seed, uh, an accelerator. So they, you know, you come in with an idea, they give you a little bit of money they give you advising, and um, if you do well, then you know you get to talk to you know higher ups about getting more funding and you know really getting your company off the ground. But you know what I hear from guys who who are there is it's like joining a frat. And mm-hmm. there have been a number of scandals at other tech companies. I'm talking about uh, GitHub, yeah, and a couple of others I've heard about. Maybe Snapchat or no, something else recently where there was you know really blatant sexism mm-hmm. at these companies. And I think it's partially, begrudgingly, I think it's partially the stereotype of, of technology. If you're a technology person, you're perceived as, uh, you have to be perceived as smart. And there's such a pervasive stereotype in some of these, these privileged environments. The only person who can be perceived as the real smart programmer is a white straight guy with glasses. And some people take it even farther and say, oh, you have to be a programmer. You have to be a real frat guy. Oh, yeah. Which is because, because I think that's a reaction to the nerd stereotype where it's like, oh, we're cool programmers. We're not nerds. Uh, right, the nerds have become the jocks. Yeah, it's like, uh, maybe the jocks, maybe this is the way the jocks have co-opted <laughs> or I don't know, revenge the jocks. I don't know what it is. But I've seen it, and it's, it's really hard because, first of all, I've noticed that if you bring up sexism, racism, homophobia, it's, it's instantly off the table. I don't want to talk about it. Why yeah. are you bringing that up? And in that environment, it's, it's both alienating and, it's, and it's, it's, it's additional alienating because you can't even talk about it. And, you know, because you're usually, uh, my, uh, you know, in the minority there, um, it's not really going to change. And, you know, that's why I really think that more of those kinds of people, particularly women, because they're, you know, they're 50% of the population, mm-hmm. need to get into technology to sort of to, to balance the scorecard. And actually, there's a blog I remember recently that was showcasing how if you look at the boards of all of these companies, they're all white, white men. It's not even, you know, you'd expect to see on occasion a woman. But, you know, you can also hear the sound of them starting to wake up. You know, Google recently released all of their diversity data and that caused a stir for them for some really some self-examination, I think, from people that there's only one percent of these these one percent in the engineering one percent is, is is black and two percent mm-hmm. is Hispanic in Google's yeah. engineering and that's you know that's really small and there's a question of I think to me the question that needs to be asked is. Because I know the exact argument that will be made by these technology companies, which is, oh, come on, this sounds like a, their problem, not our problem. They need to have more technology skills. They need to do, do better. Why, why do we have to be right. punished for the environment? But I think yeah. there's an argument to be made that you aren't making room for these people also. You're not creating the most – in many cases, I bet you're not making the most conducive – you're not making the most conducive environment available for these people. And also, let's say you have a neutral technology test. So you have a coding test for whether or not you get into these companies. First of all, on the phone, 
you might hear the fact that they're black. You might hear the fact that they're Hispanic and decide to turn them down. Uh, right. There's probably no controls for that. And then there's also, if they don't do as well, but you know you have 1% black or 2% Hispanic, why aren't you putting them into a junior developed role? Why aren't you putting them, you know you, know you need to sp- make space for, for these people. Why aren't you making some space for the fact that you know they're not doing as well, but you know you also have diversity goals that you want to reach? And it's not just a, an, an what they call an upstream problem. It's, it's not just their problem. It's, it's your problem as well. Because right. you're missing a lot of talent also. Well, I think that's good that you mentioned about, you know, kind of the um, – that they could be put into sort of a junior developer type of role. Because some of the criticism that I'll hear from companies and sometimes even from employees is that the company shouldn't sort of – I don't want to say make space, but almost like they, they, they feel like it's almost a form of affirmative action in some kind of way. Like why do they get – and I'm using they in quotation marks, but like why do they get, you know, sort of special treatments that kind of thing. And, I mean, there are other companies that, you know, also release their diversity numbers, LinkedIn, eBay, Pinterest, Yahoo, and they're Apple, that are pretty much, I think, at around the same levels in terms of, of at least with black people, in terms of their, their U.S. workforce. I think Pinterest might be the highest at 7%. Still single digit, but, you know. Yeah. And this might be too lofty of a question to ask, but are there ways that the, the gay community, and I'll even go deeper and say the black gay community, are there ways that they can help kind of increase awareness around these issues? I mean, I will confess that I have not done a lot of, and frankly, I've not done a lot of campaigning on this issue or like, uh, you know, I haven't, it's so niche. First of all, technology in general is, is niche. Yeah. And then you're talking about, you know, the few blacks, in the industry or the few gays in the industry to make their voices heard about um, the problems there. I think even this interview is an attempt to sort of make it more public mm-hmm. that, that this is a problem. And I think, you know, it's just about showing up. It really is. I mean, you really have to, you really have to increase these numbers both by ability and, and this is what I mean by making space. And actually I have, and, and, and I have to say about affirmative action, I have no problem with affirmative action. I'm in the opposite, the end of, uh, you know, even some blacks on this issue where I'm saying, they, yes, there should be affirmative action. There should be a recognition of the fact that there's, you know, this historical disadvantage for, for blacks and an attempt to fix the issue. Mm-hmm. If you believe that, and I'm telling you that what you're fighting against is there is a belief among some whites, and I and I'm stressed some whites, and I've seen this, that really that this is not... A that it should not be fixed. That it really mm-hmm. this is the way it should be. That that only a few blacks will make it, and that whites, right. you know, it's this really, you know, it's really it's a really racist viewpoint, in my in my opinion, and it's it's really normalized. It's it's not in some cases it's not seen as an extreme point of view, and to fight against that, you really need an institutional fix. You need them to you need to, them to make space so that they can see that. That, that blacks are just as capable as whites in, in technology, that there's nothing special about, you know, about this space. Just as lawyers, doctors, blacks and, and minorities are just as capable, and in some cases more so. And it's, it's, very, it's very important to, to allow them to play. In some cases, I see even at the interview level, there's some interviews I go on where it's over from the minute I walk in. And I'm not talking about this is just how I'm interpreting it. I'm talking about uh-huh. they make it clear to me that, and not not in explicit words, of course, but they are, right. you know, you can see their their change in in attitude the minute I walk in of, of oh, we thought you were a white guy, oh, we, you thought we were one of us, but we'll interview you just to say we did, but it's not uh-huh. going to happen. Yeah. So. Wow. <laughs> it, well, well, you're you're affiliated with an organization there in New York called Out in Tech. Yes. Can you tell me a little bit about Out in Tech? So Out in Tech is a, I think a, a part, so my friend Peter Elbayor, who worked with me at AppNexus, he was a part of forming it. It's an organization that tries to get gay, LGBT people in general in technology. It might be, might be focused on gay men, but that actually might be just the fact that it's just so overwhelmingly male, because I do not see a lot of lesbians there or transgender people there. But 
it's had a number of great events. We had one event at Google where we got to try on Google Glass. It's a networking event where just get tries to get us together into mm-hmm. the same space and, and, and just know who we are. And that's also how I got invited to the White House. They were reached out to by, um, by the White House because they really made a name for themselves. They're only like three years old, I think, or two or three years old, and they really made a name for themselves already. And VCs there, there are you know, people in, in all sorts of technology, different technology industries, and it's a really great event. Yeah, I think that there should be more of those kinds of things probably across the nation. I know that, like you said, out in tech kind of skews more towards men. I know there's also organizations like Lesbians Who Tech. Yeah. There's I mean, Trans Hack, which is, which is not a, yeah. a meetup, but it's actually a, um, a hackathon that was started by Dr. Courtney Ziegler that now I think is branching out across the country. So if there are ways that those groups can sort of interconnect and work together, that might you know, also help out. Yeah, and I think I, mean, I think one of the benefits of being both black and gay is you see discrimination from all sides. I mean, the the black community can be very homophobic sometimes, and the the gay community can be very can be very excluding or very stereotypical of of white men. So you see the the cracks in both sides, and mm-hmm. when you see that, um, you you're sort of you try to be a champion for all groups. Because you see that it hurts all sides, and so so that's only that's the only reason why I bring up the male thing is that I think it should be inclusive of all. But maybe I mean I haven't gone to a lesbian through tech thing. I mean maybe that's you know I haven't seen it, but maybe that those are really active groups as well that cater more towards uh, lesbians. What advice would you give to someone that's sort of just starting out in technology? I think that as an engineer or in general, we'll say in general. Okay, so. I would say that you just need to read. You need to read a lot. It's all, you know, part of technology is trying to, uh, just just so much is on the internet. There's so many resources now. Anything you don't know, you can find on Wikipedia, you can read about it, you you cannot know. And that, uh, I mean, you can figure out on your own. And there are all sorts of, there's things like Coursera, there's Khan Academy now. There's things that can teach you these ideas. And if there's anything you don't know, just, just figure it out. I'm mm-hmm. telling you that nowadays, there even after working as an engineer for ten years, all the time Google stuff. I'm all the time uh, going on Stack Overflow. How do you do this? How do you do that? St- stuff I've never known. Because there's, it's important to realize that there's more than anybody can, any one person can know. There's really a worship of the nerd nowadays, but there's also a worship of. But um, what I mean by worship of the nerd is is. There's this idea that there's this nerd who like knows everything in technology, and you really mm-hmm. don't. There's really, I mean, I've talked to some really, really smart guys, some guys out of Google, some guys. I talked to CEOs in some cases of technology, and there's a limit to to, to how much you can read every day, and you're not going to keep up with everything. So just try to do as much as you can, um, right? And as long as you make an effort to to study what you don't know, you'll go far. And right now, there's an opportunity in design. There's there's an opportunity in engineering. There's an opportunity in you know in marketing and traditional business for for these companies that you can get into. You just need to to push it. And at first, it was actually very hard for me, even with a computer science degree, to get into the technology industry. Really? Was, well, yeah. I mean, when I first started interviewing around, I noticed uh, it was actually very it was actually difficult. But you need to just keep pushing it and and keep pushing it. And once you get the street cred. Then you're in. Then you can, you know, you, you just you, you go for, you take one step and use that one step to go to the next step. And you go to the next step and the next step. So you just need to climb. And it's very possible. So don't, so don't give up. That would be my advice. Who's offered you some of the most useful career advice? And what was that advice? You know, I've really, I've, over the years I've looked for, and I've been told, I was told early on to find a mentor, to find mentors. And, you know, I've gotten snippets from people. But I really haven't found a mentor mentor, or maybe my perception of what that is was flawed to begin with. In what way? I thought you would find a contact who had been in the industry for a long time and would really, like, you know, guide me through technology. And I really haven't. I haven't found that so far. And I've really had to pull on my own bootstraps and mm-hmm. learn from reading about other people, learn from talking to people. If there's someone 
just various black mentors over the years. I really haven't found many many gay mentors. Um, mm-hmm. I have 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 advised me. So there was one at App Nexus, uh, Hagos Meritrib. He really talked talked me through um, you know doing well and trying to work as a team. So he the mo- maybe the most important thing he taught me was um, you know stop saying when you join a new company you say I you know you say I'm you know. And I did all this stuff beforehand at uh, these other companies, and that's why I got into here. And I know this from my previous experience. But you don't real—you don't realize that the minute you walk into a new company, you have to say "we." You have to say you're part of that company now. So you represent the company. You have to—you have to talk in terms of a team. And mm-hmm. even when you feel like you're a good team player, when you're really like trying to build a company and really trying to even manage a te- help manage a team, it's all about we. It's all about what we're doing, and that's uh, that transition is hard to make because mentally you're still thinking in terms of what what am I going to get out of this? What am I doing? That was important advice. So what keeps you motivated and inspired? I know you sort of said that it's been hard to try to find a mentor. I think what keeps me motivated and inspired is they're just it, – it's, it's hard not to be. I mean technology – I mean this, it's changing every day. There's, so one of the things I'm really excited about, um, if you talk to my friends, they say I won't shut up about it, is uh, Bitcoin. Ah, Bitcoin. <laughs> so I read about this paper on – so Bitcoin is a technology. And mm-hmm. it was started while I was in grad school. I read – I stumbled onto it. It is it, – what's most exciting about it is not necessarily the fact that it's, it's – so it's basically electronic money. And that's, yeah. That's pretty exciting in itself. But, but the technology underlying it is a method of creating a system of trust without any one owner or arbiter. It's decentralized uh, trust. So everybody, by working in this system, by contributing their computing cycles, through the process of contributing their cycles, they verify that the majority of of the people participating in the system agree on something. And in the case of Bitcoin, it happens to be we are agreed on the fact that these Bitcoins were created, X owns them, X gives them to Y, and Y gives them to Z, and, and so forth. And, you know, and basically, it is a computer science problem that was solved called the Byzantine general problem that means that you can get a majority of people on the internet to agree on something. And that has implications not just for money, that has implications for potentially voting, potentially uh, you could do things like smart contracts, you could have electronic contracts that automatically execute if different parties agree. So so you and I can get into an agreement that um, some other person should get money if we both uh, submit a transaction. And I think that this has implications in the legal industry, it has implications in you know, the financial industry, definitely. And also, just Bitcoin itself, it is a lot like gold. Mm-hmm. You have to mine for it. Yeah, you have to mine for it, but there's only a limited amount you can mine mine an amount. So there, so really, I mean, and the, the amount you can mine decreases exponentially. So there's really only a very limited amount of it. And people can delete it. People can lose it. And if you do that over time, you know, it becomes more and more valuable. So you have this weird sort of money scheme where the money always keeps increasing in value because you have to keep hold of it. And that, you know, that really, it, it might mess with economics a little bit because you might have people holding on to these things just by holding it, they, it becomes a lot more valuable. So I'd like to see how that plays out over the next uh, 10 years, 20 years. And when I first started in grad school, you know, there was a real question about whether we would even keep going, if we would rather even survive, that maybe the technology wasn't as good as it was claimed. And it's, mm-hmm. you know, survive for four years. So, you know, we'll see how it goes. Well, like you said, it's a it's a trust-based system. So it sort of lacks that that kind of single administrator, that central repository that, you know, other currency has. So I can see where people might be wary about it or don't even know much about it because it doesn't have that consumer protection to say – like the FDIC would yeah. for your money if it's in a bank. So there's so it's really the Wild West. There's no yeah. protection. I mean, government agencies were hit, were blindsided by this. They're scrambling to come up with new rules. New York in particular is issuing these new, very restrictive rules on what companies can do with it, which a lot of people who own Bitcoin are um, 
or want to start Bitcoin startups are, are very against because it seems too bureaucratic. And, you know, so in the same sense that the Internet sort of freed everyone to start their own companies around messaging and, and, and billboards and all these other things that you can do with the Internet, this is that for money. And you yeah. talk about money, you start to get people really, you know, you start to raise a lot of eyebrows on, on Wall Street on because you, you can be your own bank with this stuff. And I think it's in the same way that email uh, sort of changed the, the post office. I think this is going to be and, and the fact that you get a lot more email and you can do a lot more. I think that that this might change the way money is done, where people do a lot more transactions for more. More money will move around. And it will become a lot more sophisticated. So you could have multiple businesses doing all sorts of different things. I think it's going to be interesting. And I think it's also worth noting that, I mean, even though it's called Bitcoin, I think, you know, people might have the perception that because I think coin is in it, they think that it's not a lot. But like one Bitcoin, at least as of the recording of this interview, is about $500. Yeah. Or a little bit more than that. So when you're spending Bitcoin, because there are. You know, there's, I think there's a university now that takes it, but there's certainly other retailers that take Bitcoin now. You're actually paying like fractions off of that yeah, Bitcoin so, when so you're doing transactions. What's, what's lost in, in the name Bitcoin is the fact that the decimal place for Bitcoin, you can go back to eight decimal places. So you can have one Bitcoin, which is called a Satoshi, named after the guy who... Who created it? You created Nakamoto, right? Yeah, and uh, you can spend that tiny, tiny amount on it. So when somebody says, like, oh, it's $500, it's way too expensive, I don't want to buy it, to, to somebody who knows Bitcoin, they're like, no, that's not, you don't have to, to spend $500. You can buy as tiny amounts as you want. Um, right. And, you know, the idea is that even if large amounts of Bitcoin were deleted or were lost, you can always still have an economy with it or at least reasonably have an economy with it because you can spend these tiny little amounts. Those tiny little amounts will eventually become more and more valuable. And so it's sort of a, it's fail safe on multiple fronts. Yeah. I read in the guardian that incoming students, actually the current incoming class at MIT will get a hundred dollars in Bitcoin. Yes. So they can, they're trying to like jumpstart this, this Bitcoin ecosystem to sort of see what, putting that much money into the currency will, or I guess, I guess putting that much interest in the currency will, will flourish yeah. to see what it will do. I think that'll be really interesting to see. Because, uh, and because, uh, you know, as much as nerds will rant and rave about, about, about how great Bitcoin is or how exciting it is, you know, people don't, it's not that hard to spend money nowadays. It's not that hard to pull out a credit card. It's not that hard to, to pay for things. Uh, we already right. have we've, – we've been through all this through, through hundreds of years of creating these institutions to, to support banking. This is simply – somebody told me it's – somebody told me I think it's very apt. It's, it's like the creation of teleportable gold, which is nice, but when was there that much of a need for that in the first place? Mm-hmm. And so this is an attempt to, okay, we're going to give each MIT student in this closed system, you know, a university, we're going to give them each $100 of Bitcoin and just see what they do with it. And it's an experiment that, um, you know, nobody knows uh, how it'll turn out. Uh, I'm excited about it because, um, you know, there's now companies who want to try their Bitcoin ideas now have an ecosystem to actually try it, you know, to, to, to give it out. So we'll see how it plays out. Now let's switch gears just a little bit. Let's talk more about you know, kind of you personally, as opposed to, you know, really the the work that you're doing. Are you where you kind of wanted to be at this stage in your life? I think, so my, the whole thing that's been driving me since I was, so my father was a salesman and I watched him a number of times try to start his own company and he never made it. Or at least he, he, he made it, but he never was successful from it. And so I said, I wanted to do that with, so I said, you know, Maybe it would be best for me to just keep a nine to five job for my career because I saw that you know it's, it in some cases it's not worth it. You know you get obsessed with I want to be a millionaire, I want to I want to start my own company, I want to do all this thing. But you know you can also be very successful just with a traditional job. You know you, if it, and if you take time away from doing that, then if you take time away from your job to start a company all the time, then you know you're sort of missing your career. And so 
I said, when I saw technology was that powerful of a force in industry, I said, okay, I'm going to get into technology. I'm going to start my own company and then it'll be different for me. And I think for me, I tried it with the mask society and I, I, you know, I'm still trying with a couple of other things, but for me, I've also found a lot of success just being a software engineer. And mm-hmm. because of that, I question whether or not I want to continue trying to form my own company. But for me, I, yes, I always wanted to start my own company. So if I... Would you do it like around Bitcoin? Yeah, I mean, like, uh, I have a number of ideas with Bitcoin and, you know, I have a number of sites. So I, I told you about uh, CoinVote, which is, um, it's sort of a Reddit-like site where every time you upvote or downvote a post, you pay a little bit of Bitcoin to the person who submitted it. Mm-hmm. So that creates sort of an economy of an economy. So people want to submit stuff to this site because they get paid for it. And and that's what really what Bitcoin could allow is micropayments. So, but... You know, it, you know, it wasn't just Bitcoin. It was, you know, the Mass Society. You know, I had some ideas in college uh, also that never got there. But, you know, probably if I, if I, you know, if I had a magic wand, I could change things around. I, I probably would have my own company. But it's also, it's, you can also do well just as a software engineer. Nowadays, as a software engineer, you can make a lot of money. So, oh, yeah. So, so it's, it's not, it shouldn't be, uh, you know, if, if, if you have any skill, it's not just about technology. If you have any skill that is in high demand and you know you can do it if you're a lawyer if you're you know whatever then then you can make money and that should not be discounted you should not say to yourself oh well i should only be i should only be a ceo of a company that is the only way in which i will be successful because you get trapped by that and it's very difficult to start a company even when you get i've seen it myself even when you get funding even when you have great advisors and you work 7 days a week you can still fail. In many cases, tons and tons of people to buy your product or to have interest in your product. And it, it, it cannot materialize. So it's risky. Where do you see yourself in the next five years or so? That being said, I think I will make a couple <laughs> at, uh, at at starting some sort of uh, company. You know, I could work for a few technology companies. So, so, I'm actually interested in working maybe for maybe some more some more advanced technology companies. So I, you know, SpaceX is actually looking for software engineers. There's a number. I still haven't moved out to the Valley and just seen what the careers are that. So I've been in New York now for maybe seven years. Mm-hmm. And I always thought that New York would eventually become Valley-like. And there are some, you know, there are some institute, you know, there's there's co-working spaces now, there's venture funding, there's a lot of the infrastructure. So what I was always told with New York is New York just doesn't have the infrastructure that Silicon Valley has. Silicon Valley now has a company-making machine that doesn't exist in New York. But I've heard that that's changed and people are slow to recognize that. However... I think that, you know, actually going to that environment, actually going to Silicon Valley and just seeing what's out there. You know, I'm, I'm well aware of it. You know, I read a lot about it. But actually experiencing it will be very productive. So I might, I might end up in the Valley. I might start my own company. I might still be a software engineer in New York. It's a, it's a lot of options. So even though, you know, it sounds like technology has been the overarching theme of pretty much everything that you've done, just, you know, I guess playing devil's advocate, if you weren't doing this, what would you be doing? So when I was in, in high school, I was a part of Philosophy Club uh, okay. at Scarsdale. So what's great about Scarsdale is actually the very, it's a lot of peacocking. A lot of people, I'm smarter than you, I'm smarter than you, I'm smarter than you. So part of that culture was Philosophy Club was a place where you just went and argued about stuff. You brought up mm-hmm. stuff to argue about. You just did it out there. And so when I was a part of that group, I really I really felt like I learned. It was a little, you know, there was a debate club, but the debate club is formalized. It's very highly structured and it's very, in some cases, very biased. And But in the philosophy club, it's just free form arguing. And, and I think from that, I learned, I learned how to debate. I learned how to argue, how to question things. And I think, you know, I, I, might, I might have ended up a lawyer. Um, because I like, I have a very deep interest in in the intellectual, in you know, in de- in debate. I have a very very large interest in politics, 
And I was very excited about uh, Barack Obama. Actually, what was exciting about Barack Obama in particular, his first campaign was, you know, it was really, he really used a lot of technology. Yeah. And that was different. It wasn't just that he was the first black president. He was, he was the first almost like internet president. You know, he had small dollar donations online. He kept you in touch with what he was doing on an email. He had these videos on YouTube, which would go to like number one and... He really felt like he was really using all of those resources, and and maybe it wasn't him. Maybe it was uh, his, you know, the the young people, a part of his campaign, trying to get him more visibility. So maybe uh, politics, or maybe the legal world. And now, just to wrap things up, where can our audience find you online? So I'm on Twitter, uh, David A. Dennis. I'm you can email me d a v d e n n i s at gmail dot com. Dab Dennis at Gmail. For all my talk of technology, I do not have a web presence at the at the moment. I mean, I do not have a specific website. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, I'm on LinkedIn, I'm on Facebook. You know, people can reach me. I'm open to uh, to talking more. And um, I think there needs to be a lot. You know, I'm, I'm interested in, in organizing any sort of group that helps diversity in technology, or you know, that really wants to fight to make these places these areas more equal for everyone. Well, I think you definitely will have some people that will contact you. And I know there's a lot of, I think, smaller organizations that are doing this thing. But if we all kind of come together and work together, I think we will definitely make that happen. David Dennis, thank you again so much for talking with me today. This was a really good conversation. I got to geek out a little bit about Bitcoin (laughs) and stuff. So that's always good. But uh, thank you again so much. I appreciate it. All right. Thanks a lot, Maurice. And that's it for this week. Big thanks to David Dennis and thanks to you for listening. Don't forget to check out our sponsor MailChimp and thank them as well. MailChimp sends over 10 billion emails each month and they're great for businesses large and small. Sign up today for a free account at MailChimp.com. What did you think of this interview? Did you like it? Head over to iTunes or Stitcher Radio and leave us a review for your chance to win a $50 Amazon.com gift card. Details are at RevisionPath.com. Just click on the orange banner at the top of the page. Revision Path is a 318 media project. If you like this podcast and want to help keep it going, visit RevisionPath.com forward slash donate. Drop a tip in our tip jar, sponsor an upcoming episode, or join at the $5 fist bump level and show your ongoing support. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you next time.